Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Beer and Money. My name is Ryan Burklow. And I'm Alex Collins. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a comparison between whole life insurance, which we spoke about in our last episode, and bonds. And the yeah. reason we chose bonds is I think there's a lot of misnomers out there around comparison of where to put money. And when people talk about permanent life insurance or whole life insurance, they oftentimes are comparing it to an asset that we would say isn't really the asset to compare it against. It's like comparing apples and oranges. And as always, the disclaimer we want to throw out there is with with permanent life insurance or whole life insurance for today's episode, again, it's life insurance first, right? It's protection around your income. Yeah. I mean, there has to be a a desire for the death benefit. um, But in terms of like how it functions, a whole life policy is much more similar and comparable to a bond than it is to say an equity. Yep. So before we dive any further into this topic, Mr. Collins, what are you drinking right now? Uh, today I am drinking Twilight. Uh, it, it is a limited release from Deschutes. Uh, Deschutes is a great brewery just uh, down there on the Oregon border. Um, and uh, uh, this clocks in at 5% with 38 IBUs. Um, it's supposed to be just kind of like a summer beer, something that's light and crisp and refreshing. Um, the, the art, and if you can see the art on the bottle, um, that's one of the things that drew me in. And then like Deschutes is just a great brewery. Uh, so I, I don't think I've had Twilight before. If I have, it's been a long time since I've had it. What are you drinking, Ryan? So I'm drinking Voodoo Ranger and it's called their Juicy Haze IPA. I had had Voodoo Ranger before. The bottle always catches my attention, obviously, with the skull. I tend to drink it during Halloween just because, to me, it looks like Halloween uh, because of the skull. Um, in terms of uh, the taste of this, it is not good, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, before we hopped on here, Alex and I were, were talking, and he happened to see my very first sip of this. Um, which was that I think it's probably the bitter beer face, maybe a uh, picture that, that we have out there. This is not my, a, a good beer to me. For me, it's a, it's a one out of 10 for bottle cap rating. Uh, this is a, it's a new Belgium beer, right? Um, yes, correct. Uh, new Belgium makes some great beers, some truly great beers. Um, but uh, yeah, if, uh, <laughs> Clearly, Voodoo Ranger is, or at least this version of Voodoo Ranger, is not Ryan's favorite. Um, so this Twilight beer, uh, it is exactly ad- as advertised. It's it's light, it's uh, refreshing. This is this is the the like when I think of this type of a beer, this is the type of beer that you want when you're uh, floating the river and you're gonna you want to have like something that's nice and cool and refreshing. Um, but like, isn't super heavy. It's not going to get, you're not going to feel it too much. Um, I mean, it still has some alcohol in it at 5%, but, uh, um, this, this is a very solid beer. Um, it's not my favorite style. So I'm going to give this a six out of 10. Um, like in terms of the style, it's more like an eight or a nine. Um, I just typically like something with a little bit more, uh, flavor and, and like pack packs a bigger punch behind it. 
Deschutes make makes salad beers, so definitely try them out. Mm. Um, Voodoo Ranger does have some good ones. This is just not good. So uh, that's our rating for today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let's let's get on to the topic today, Alex. So you and I get uh, you know quite frustrated when we hear people talking to um, especially product only type of uh, comparisons, which you and I. You know, it's always apples and oranges because they never they never compare everything that they sh- should when it comes to products, taxation, cash flow, right? All, all of those aspects. But specifically with whole life insurance, I mean, it's amazing what people will compare it to, and it gets bashed in so many different ways. And sometimes it's it's a good bash, like that's a fair statement. And and other times it's like they don't even know the product that they're talking about. And so the uh, last episode, we wanted to clear it up around like how whole life insurance works. And then we wanted to show you how you really should compare it, at least consider comparing it to. And that's more like bonds. Yeah. I mean, it it feels like people run to the extremes with this particular product. Uh, it's either the best thing since sliced bread and, oh, my God, everybody needs to own this. And like, it's wonderful. Everyone should do this instead of everything else which is 100% not accurate, or the alternative, which is the entire thing is garbage. Like Nobody should ever buy this stuff. Oh my God, I can't believe this stuff gets sold. Uh, it's criminal that people sell this stuff. And that's also not accurate. Um, you know, Any financial tool, the tool itself is not good or bad. It is designed for a purpose and it has a place. So much of it is... A, do we have a good version of the tool? And then B, how are we using the tool? Um, and the, the, the best example that I can think of to give is the idea of a sledgehammer. And unless you're in a James Bond movie, it doesn't matter how good of a sledgehammer you have. It's not going to fix a car. I mean, MacGyver could do it, though. <laughs> Fair. Fair. So, uh, the, the, the speaking point of which, is, real quick, I have to interrupt tool. you. Quick fun story for those listeners that love MacGyver and, and our 80s kids. Um, true story. MacGyver was found on the side of the road uh, with a flat tire and couldn't change it. And someone took a picture of him and said, this completely changed my viewpoint of MacGyver. <laughs> oh, that's, that is hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Back in, back into the conversation. You, I'm sorry. I had to go there because I thought it was hilarious. Um, to, to Alex's point, right? Like, Everything isn't a, sl- a sledgehammer, and you know, with the with whole life what, insurance, what was the, that out? the point was that a sledgehammer might be a great tool. It's just not the right tool for fixing everything, right? So when we talk about whole life insurance, like a good comparison might be bonds. And let, let's talk about four characteristics or four, yeah, four characteristics of bonds uh, to begin this conversation, Alex. And those characteristics are taxation, credit, liquidity, and duration. I think we should add a fifth to this, Ryan, and and talk about like rate of return and where it comes from. Sure. That works just as well. So we'll talk about rate. So a fifth one is rate of return. So let's talk about taxation to begin with, Alex. So bonds, how are they taxed? Uh, So it depends on what type of tax, what type of bond it is and where it's owned. Um, So unless it is. Let's just talk about a standard government bond. Sure. Um, what you're saying there is a non-municipal bond. 
uh, which Correct. means that it's it like it is going to be taxable as ordinary income unless it is inside of some other tax favorable um, vehicle like a an IRA, a 401k, something of that nature. So if you just own it uh, outside of anything else, it is going to be taxable. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're like we're, well, we're looking at- It also gets a coupon rate, right? So the, the interest rate that it gets- Some do, some pay, don't. Right. So in, in most instances, or in the instance that we're talking about today, the, the coupon rate of interest is is- is a interest rate that the owner of the bond gets and that interest is also taxed. Yes. Right. So that's, that's a key ingredient that I think a lot of people forget when they, when they think about bonds to your point, there are different types of bonds, but that's the type of bond we're speaking into today. Well, and like that type of interest income that you were just speaking to uh, is predominantly taxed as ordinary income um, as opposed to say capital gains or things of that nature, uh, if you see appreciation in the bond, uh, which would typically happen if you purchase a bond and interest rates go down, uh, interest rates going down means that the interest rate of your bond uh, is more valuable than what you could buy on the open market. Um, that is going to cause your bond or should cause your bond to appreciate in the absence of anything else. Um and that uh, capital appreciation, again, assuming that you're holding it for longer than 365 uh, days and a couple other caveats, uh, not intended as tax advice, should wind up being long-term capital gains. Um, and so there is potentially some some tax advantages there to it. Um, if you're buying zero coupon bonds where you're buying it at a discount, um, you're going to wind up with with some advantages there. Um, but the the point is, is that like, these are taxable investments uh, and there are exceptions like municipal bonds and having it inside of a different tax favorable vehicle and like all the normal caveats, right? Yep. What's in now let's take us to credit, right? So the, the credit of the bond, right? There are government bonds, which have a very high credit because the only way they go belly up is if the United States government goes belly up. Well, and the, the last time that we saw a, uh, a credible threat to the credit rating of the United States government, uh, the market's response was to rush to safety, and they were worried about uh, the credit rating of the U.S. government, and so everyone ran out and bought U.S. government bonds, <laughs> right. which basically said, nope, we think that this is the safest vehicle out there, um, and kind of ended the credit crisis based on that. Yep. And then the other type of bond that sometimes gets brought up, at least in this conversation, is corporate bonds, Alex, uh, right? And corporate bonds are are debt uh, for corporate companies, right? So debt of Apple, for example, right? So um, that type of uh, bond typically is a higher yielding or a higher return type of bond because it's higher risk, right? The higher risk you take, typically the more opportunity for return. Yeah, it's it's backed by the full faith and credit of instead of the federal government, it's backed by the full faith and credit of whatever the issuing institution is. In your example, Apple. Um, now, bondholders or debt holders are uh, in line for receiving funds prior to shareholders or stockholders um, in the event that a company gets forced into liquidation or bankruptcy. So there, it's not. Again, it depends on the credit worthiness of the company. Um, there certainly are companies out there that are, you know, much more risky than your example of Apple, 
Um, I mean, Apple is generally thought of as one of the best companies in the world. It's generally going to be relative, like its bonds are going to be relatively low risk. Um, but yeah, the two types of risks that bonds expose you to are credit risk, which is the risk of not receiving your money back and interest rate risk. The, the concern that interest rates are going to rise because if interest rates rise, you'll be able to get more yield or more, a bigger coupon than what your bond was issuing. So for example, if your bond was issued at, uh, at par at 5% and interest rates go from 5% to 6% for however long you're locked into that bond, whatever the maturity is, you're going to lose out in my example there of 1%. Uh, because you could go buy a bond at 6% because that's the new par rate. Yeah, which takes us to, um, let's talk about duration since we're, we're talking about you know duration and liquidity. Liquidity is the next one, but let's start with duration here, Alex. So bonds, right? Like par is you, you buy the bond and then the duration is, let's just say you bought a 10-year bond. At the end of 10 years, you get your money back. Uh, correct. Um, right. And how does and, that affect, and, right? So, so you were bringing up interest rates. Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> Buying it at par just means that it was like a $10,000 bond and you bought it for $10,000 um, as opposed to buying it at a premium or buying it at a discount. Right. Um, you're you're going to buy it at a discount if you buy it for less than ten grand. And the reason why that would occur is because you're receiving a smaller coupon or a smaller interest payment um, to hold it than what the market currently bears. Um, if you're buying it at a premium, you're buying a bigger uh, coupon or a bigger interest rate um, than what the market is currently bearing. Um, that's a little bit different than than duration. Uh, what duration is, is duration is the length of time until you receive a time-weighted uh, value of your money back. So if you have a zero-coupon bond, a bond that doesn't pay a dividend or an, or, or an interest as it goes along, your maturity and your duration are going to be exactly the same. The bigger the coupon, the earlier the duration is going to be because you're going to receive a portion of the dollars earlier than receiving it at the end. Um, and duration is a way of testing how interest rate sensitive a bond is. The longer the duration, the closer to maturity until you receive your money back, the more a move in interest rates up or down will fluctuate your bond. So that has an effect, and we correlate that oftentimes to liquidity. And then I want to go into the Silicon Valley Bank example of this, because I think that kind of sums up liquidity and duration rather well for us. And it just occurred, so it's relatively... Uh, fresh in people's minds. So let's talk about liquidity at, uh, from this, the standpoint of bonds, Alex. Uh, sure. So bonds, most of the time, are going to be fairly liquid. Like there's a, a market for them. You can sell your bonds on the open market. Um, now, ironically, I've got a client right now who they inherited a whole bunch of bonds from uh, their father um, and they couldn't sell them where they were. 
We brought them over. They couldn't sell them here either because the positions were too small and the, the bonds themselves were too thinly traded. And so we're stuck holding these things to maturity. So there, there is some potential lack of liquidity with bonds. Um, it really comes down to uh, like what bonds they are, how many we have, and what how much value there is there uh, to be able to determine whether there's a, a market to be able to, to sell these things. Yeah, and so f- here's an example that can make them liquid or really illiquid in this example. So we're talking about Z- Silicon Valley Bank. So what occurred with Silicon Valley Bank is the the bank takes your money in and then they invest that money. Silicon Valley Bank invests a lot of their money in these bonds and longer term bonds that was paying a pretty low return. And I'm just going to make up an example because I don't know the exact number. Let's just say the return was like one and a half percent. Okay. Then financial news gets out there. People come in, they want more of their money from their accounts. So they're taking cash out of their accounts. The bank doesn't have enough cash sitting on the sidelines. And so they had to sell some of these bonds to provide the cash to give to their members. The issue that occurred was interest rates had gone up. And as Alex said, as interest rates go up, that causes bond prices to go down. So when they sold these bonds, they sold them at a loss. So while it was liquid, they got the money, they sold the investment at a loss, which is what caused the Silicon Valley Bank shakeup. Yeah, there's a couple other factors that go into it. Um, One... Uh, Silicon Valley predominantly invested in startups, uh, predominantly in the Silicon Valley area. Um, and that's a really tight knit community. And a couple of folks in that community suggested that everyone pull their funds. Um, and this created a little bit of a run on the bank. Um, the way in which Silicon Valley Bank chose to raise funds to be able to meet these deposits was to sell existing bonds um, and realize a loss, which shook further shook consumer confidence in the bank um and the 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 way in which they handled it from a pr standpoint um also played into like people's view and like it caused this negative downward spiral um with deposits um and deposits are the lifeblood of a a, a regional bank yeah and the whole reason i'm sharing this story isn't to go into exactly the silicon valley shakeup alex the point of it is is talking about the illiquidity that bonds can actually have, because if, if that's what you have and you have to sell, like if that's your only option, that's what can occur to your own personal financial situation. You're selling at a loss. Yeah. I, it, bonds, You if interest rates spike up, you really don't want to sell bonds because you're going to be selling it at a loss. Uh, the duration um, the length of time before you receive your money back is going to uh, tell you how much that's magnified. The shorter the time period, um, the less movement there's going to be because you get to reinvest those dollars uh, much sooner and much quicker um, back into, um, at that point, the new higher interest rate uh, in the example. Um, conversely, if it's going the other direction, if interest rates are falling, uh, the shorter the duration, the less the magnitude uh, for the exact same reason you're going to be reinvesting into the new lower rate in that example um, sooner. 
Exactly. Which takes us to the last characteristics that you want to talk about, which was rate of return on the bonds, Alex. Yeah. Um, so if we, and like when, so this is talking about bonds, the rate of return of bonds is it, it, you're owning debt. You're owning, um, the, like you're, you're allowing either, uh, a government entity, the federal government or state or local could be, um, you know, a revenue bond, uh, like a, a project that a municipality, like a state or a county or a city put on, uh, where they're, they're funding it through like a new tax or a toll or something of that nature. Um, and so, uh, you, you have a relatively high degree of certainty that you're going to get your money back. Um, and as a result, we don't see as anywhere near as much return, uh, because the, we're taking less risk. Um, there's more certainty of outcome. Uh, which means that we typically don't wind up seeing this, the same types of returns. Um, historically, we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe uh, 2% on the low end. Uh, we've, we've seen bond rates drop even below that recently, um, yep. given you know ultra low rate interest rate environment. Um, and we've seen bonds climb up. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that we've been in for like up until really recently when we started seeing interest rates climb, We'd been in a, a relatively declining interest rate market since the early 80s, where we'd only ever seen interest rates on bonds come down for a 30 plus year time period. Um, yes, there are blips like 2007, 2008, where interest rates spiked up again a little bit, but predominantly the, like if you're drawing a graph, like you're seeing this downward movement of interest rates and then it stayed low and flat for a long period of time, uh, thanks in part to the financial meltdown of 2008, 2009. So these characteristics are what makes up the bonds. And so the reason we're choosing this asset class to, to compare whole life against is whole life is, has a lot of similarities. There are some, some stuff that is different, but there are quite a few similarities. So we're going to use those same uh, characteristic categories to look at whole life insurance, right? So let, let's kind of dive into these on the whole life insurance side. As we mentioned in the last uh, episode, whole life builds this asset inside of it called cash value, right? There's the life insurance portion, which is the death benefit. And that's the reason why you purchase this type of product. But it also builds an asset called cash value. And that cash value has a minimum like guaranteed aspect of growth. And you have access to that money. And then there's another piece that comes in, which is called a dividend that the insurance company will kick off as profits to the policy holder. And this cash value grows tax deferred. So you don't owe taxes on the growth. And there are some ways to get after that cash value tax free, right? So from a taxation standpoint, it's a little bit, it can be taxed. So the, let's just say you put in a hundred thousand dollars into the whole life insurance policy and uh, the cash value is now worth $150,000. If you took out the whole $150,000, you'd owe taxes on the 50,000, not your initial hundred. You'd also blow up the policy and you wouldn't have a policy anymore. Right. So th- that's how it's taxed though. And so that's the difference in, in taxation between bonds and, and whole life is bonds. You've got the muni class, which is tax-free, or inside of a retirement plan, which could be tax-deferred and maybe taxable when you take it out, depending on on the structure, traditional or Roth. So we've got that aspect. 
but the the cash value aspect can be access tax free either via loan or maybe leveraging leveraging the policy in some capacity as well. So that's the taxation of the whole life insurance policy. Did I miss anything there, Alex? No, I think you, you nailed it fairly well, Ryan. I think right. we're in good shape there. And then, so let's let's transition to credit. So what's the difference in, in credit for the whole life policies? Sure. So in cre- like we have to understand like what the credit rating of the underlying insurance company is. And there's about four or five uh, major credit agencies. Uh, there's also this thing called Comdex. Um, Comdex was designed as a way to compare different insurance companies across uh, that like may or may not subscribe to all of the, the major um, ratings agencies. Um, in general, um, you've got you know, companies with a Comdex that's like north of 90 to 95 are, are extremely credit worthy. They're some of the most credit worthy companies that are out there. Um, and like have a, a very, very long, very rich track record of, of being consistent. Um, and so ultimately, uh, we then need to dig into and look at like, say the balance sheet of like what's on the balance sheet of these various different, uh, insurance companies. Um, and like oftentimes you see bonds as a large component of the underlying assets that are backing, uh, the, the cash value, um, or the reserve accounts of these life insurance companies. Now, uh, there, there are, uh, some different protections put in place. There are, uh, some agency, government agencies that, that back, uh, insurance carriers to, to a certain extent and to a certain level. Um, each state runs and, and operates a little bit differently. So you need to make sure that you understand what, what it is in your state. Um, you also, uh, need to understand like, okay, what, like, what, how do the different characteristics of the underlying bond portfolio, um, affect the return, uh, affect the risk, um, and things of that nature. So you can have, uh, you know, Companies that invest in uh, uh, like diversified equity portfolios, they can invest in um, private bonds, public bonds. You know, ultimately, uh, life insurance companies are some of the biggest consumers of bond and fixed income instruments, um, and so largely they're going to get access to the fixed income market way before you as an individual investor does. And so a lot of the bonds that you can go buy individually have already been picked over by these big multinational uh, companies, whether it's an insurance company or, or an institutional investor or somebody else. Um, and so we don't necessarily have the same uh, access as individuals when we go out to the bond market um, as these these companies. We also don't have an army of folks looking at what's the proper decision to make in terms of duration, credit quality, uh, these types of concepts um, that we're looking at. And lastly, one of the things that the insurance companies have that individual bond investors may or may not is cash flow. Um, so a lot of the the big uh, insurance companies, they've got dollars coming in that they're putting aside into new fixed income type structures and so in the event that they need to create liquidity, they've got a ton of liquidity coming in in the form of cash flow from new premiums. And as a result, 
they may not need to liquidate part of the portfolio. They might have it coming in in the form of of cash flow, which gives them a, a huge leg up um, when you know selling in a, a an adverse marketplace. Yeah. So the the these insurance companies are, are quite large, right? And as Alex states, right, stated there, the way they invested and invest the money is very conservative and have access to to many things that uh, and and knowledge and just the the strategy and portfolio build uh is a little bit more um complex than maybe a lot of other people uh maybe know or maybe don't know how to do then you add in the fact that from a credit standpoint right we were talking about the dividends some of these insurance companies have paid a dividend for 150 plus straight years when you take that into consideration that's a pretty strong credit rating, and you have to tie that to how they're investing the money at the same time. Now, they don't guarantee the dividend, but 150 plus straight years, that's pretty compelling um, from that standpoint. And it's not that they're taking your money and investing it in hedge funds, right? Right. That Correct. is a drastic different uh, comparison, which I think, which is interesting, that's a lot of people will compare a whole life policy to stocks or whatever they choose this higher risk type of uh, asset class is like you're comparing apples and oranges, which is why we're, we chose bonds as we were talking about here, right. uh, some similarities. I mean, it's kind of like comparing a stock portfolio to a, a checking account. Uh, does the rate of return on a checking account make it bad? No, it's just the wrong tool for long-term savings. Um, like you don't want to put all of your money into a whole life policy, uh, because your rate of return isn't going to be as big. Um, but is it a, a fixed income alternative? It certainly can be. Um, it, it can be a piece of an overall diversified portfolio. Um, and, you know, like we said, um, whole life companies have access to, uh, unique products and, maybe not first pick, but certainly higher pick than retail investors when it comes to accessing the bond markets uh, because they're buying on massive quantities. Um, you know, and, and just you as a retail investor, even if you've got a, uh, a, you know, an eight figure portfolio or a nine figure portfolio, like unless you're on a 10, 11 or 12 figure portfolio or more, you're, you're not able to compete with these huge multinational companies. Um, and so as a result, you're not getting first pick. Um, and that's a huge part of this. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, like these companies have like an army of folks that are doing the work, figuring out what to select, when to select it, like how to structure it, what's the proper duration, like what they're looking at. Um, and like even a really good financial advisor, financial planner, stockbroker, whatever, like, retail financial advisor, like we are not going to have access to the same tools, the same time periods that like we just don't have the same tools in our arsenal to be able to accomplish this. So now let's talk into liquidity and duration, right? So we've already talked into liquidity a little bit here in the fact that that cash value that's building up, you have full access to that money. Yeah, absolutely. It's that straightforward. Now there's various ways to access it but you have full access to that money. So it's it's liquid. From a duration standpoint, Alex, how does duration compare with bonds and, and whole life? Sure. I mean, the biggest issue is when you go select a bond, you have a single duration. 
when yep. you go out and buy a whole life policy, the duration to a large extent doesn't exist. Uh, because I mean, it does, but it's not anywhere near the same uh, the, the same magnitude of, of impact to a whole life policy uh, because you have a multitude of different durations inside of the whole life policy. Uh, as you said, and eloquently pointed out, any of the cash value that's in the built up in the policy is liquid. You've got access to it. Um, now, like, we'll get into like the positives and negatives to these things here um, in just a few minutes. Um, and there's like, don't get me wrong. It's there's not all, it's not all rosy and, uh, wonderful. There, there are negatives to these things. Um, which is why it can't be all the best or all the worst. Um, but, uh, like you still have a long duration and a long time view because these insurance companies have been around for 150 plus years. We're not referencing one company in particular. There's a bunch of companies out there that have had pardon me, a history of paying a dividend for over 150 years. Um, so it's not as though we're cherry picking like, oh, this is company X. Like there's half a dozen or more companies that like fit this profile. Um, and you you get the benefit of being able to look long-term, but the ability to access things liquid uh, with, you know, reduced or, or limited costs to getting access to those dollars. Yeah, so... I guess the last piece that we'll talk into briefly, and then we'll do maybe just a quick like uh, analysis between the two, maybe pros and cons between the two is, is rate of return uh, on the whole life policy, Alex, right? So it does have some, some built-in uh, rates return that is going to come your way on the cash value aspect, not on dollar for dollar of what you put into the policy. And then also the dividend that comes in the door. Um, it, there is no guarantees on what that rate of return will look like, but somewhere, you know, estimated, right? So it's somewhere between what, two, 5% or so um, tax-free or tax-deferred aspect of that, right? And, and it could be all over the map, but there is a rate of return built inside of the whole life policy. Uh, yes. So there there are there are some guarantees that are associated with it. They, they just uh, cha- passed some legislation that allowed insurance companies to fluctuate and, and move that guarantee. Um, and it's, it's very counterintuitive to a lot of people. Uh, the lower the, the number that the insurance company uses as the guarantee, uh, the, the better that it should work long term, uh, assuming that things work in the proper manner. Uh, because assuming you know, there's dividends that are kicked off from the insurance company, correct? It, exactly. You're going to put it, it's going to like a lower interest rate requires more premiums to get to a point where the policy endows, where the cash value becomes the same as the death benefit. Um, and so then if you wind up having performance through uh, dividends and things of that nature, you're going to wind up with a lot more cash value inside of the policy. And the more cash value you have inside of a policy, the better it's going to uh, function and perform. You're going to wind up with even bigger dividends. You're going to wind up with less dollars at risk. You're, like There are a lot of really good beneficial components uh, to building up cash value inside of a policy. Um, and we can talk until we're blue in the face about like, what's the optimal design of a policy? Cause the, 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 I mean, the easy answer is it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, but uh, uh, ultimately you, with the, the lower, the guaranteed interest rate, the worse, the guaranteed options 
are, but the better the expected performance will be. Um, and this is where it becomes important to make sure that you're with a really good, highly rated mutual life insurance company. Um, mutual because it's you are a part owner and there's less conflicts of interest like we talked about last time. Um, highly rated because you you don't want to be with a company that's fly by night where there there's some potential changes that can be made inside of some of these things and what like you want a company that's going to pay a, a consistent dividend. Yeah, so when we're comparing these two uh, Alex, I, I think there's they both have they could have tax benefits from the standpoint of the bonds if you're if you're investing in maybe a retirement account or muni type bonds you could you could get some tax benefits such as whole life uh provides um from a from a, a credit standpoint like they're very similar obviously the the life insurance companies aren't you backed by the United States government if that's what you're comparing it to but they're just below the United States government. But overall, I think that a, a big difference between the two is this. Bonds go up and down in price. There's fluctuations. And the whole life insurance policy, when you're putting money into it, it's steady Eddie. It's going to go up. Now, what it goes up by, that's up for debate, depending on dividend and all that kind of fun stuff. But it goes up every year. Yeah. And like one, like you talked at the beginning about like, what are the things that, how do people compare these things? And one of the biggest comparison mistakes that people make is they compare a whole life policy to a stock market portfolio, or even to, like if they correct, uh, compare it to say a bond market portfolio, like, okay, you're still not comparing apples to apples because you need to build in the cost of say a term insurance, you need to build in whatever the, the cost of the taxation is. And so you need to have a robust model in order to be able to compare apples to apples in a, as close to a real life scenario as possible. Um, and you wind up with a boatload of different variables, which is why everyone should go ahead and do the analysis and the research themselves to figure out like, okay, or work with a professional to do it, but figure out why, they should design a policy which way or whether they should use a bond portfolio instead and what the benefits are to that. Like those are the types of things that need to be done um, in terms of a comparative analysis for your specific unique situation. And then from a, from a liquidity standpoint, if, if we're investing for the long term, I can make an argument that the whole life policy might be slightly more liquid just because of the ebbs and flows of bonds going the price point going up and down if we're looking at a short term period of time, again, there's pros and cons of both sides as well on the short term on the whole life policy. There may not be that much cash value to begin with because the early years don't really provide much. And then with bonds, if interest rates happen to go the wrong direction, that also might become an issue, right? So they both have their pros and cons there. And then from a rate of return standpoint, right? It depends on the type of bond you're getting, but these are very similar type of products or asset classes one is just more of steady eddy in the background that doesn't have much fluctuation, that being the whole life. The bonds having a lot more fluctuation and it depends on the type, the, the duration, there's a lot more there. And in the end, would you get more than what the whole life would have done? That's up like, who knows? There's too many variables there. A hundred percent. There's too many variables. And I mean, that's why having a diversified portfolio where you have some of each 
is generally speaking a good idea. And then it's just a matter of trying to determine what is optimal for your specific circumstances. Um, if you're owning bonds for early liquidity, yeah, you should own bonds for early liquidity. Like cash value in the early years is not going to provide the liquidity that you're looking for. That's an example where uh, bonds are significantly better. Um, One, you can make an argument that holding it in cash might be the better option, depending on what you're holding it there for, right? 100%. So again, this is to Alex's point, this is why it's so vital to have someone in your corner looking at where all of your money is sitting. So you've got a plenty of flexibility where interest rate or stock market or uh, what have you, whatever events occurring, you've got a different avenue or different account or different structure to pull from and it doesn't hurt your overall goal. Absolutely. And and I think that does a good job of bringing us to our question of the day, Ryan. Uh, and our question today is, have you considered owning whole life as a piece of your fixed income portfolio? And how have you thought about it? So head over to beerandmoney.net and at the top of the page is a contact us page. I'd love to hear uh, what, um, how you've, A, if you've heard of this type of comparison and B, what, how did you decide what to do? There is no right or wrong answer. It's based on how, what your design is. So beerandmoney.net, contact us page. If you got any value out of this, share it with your friends, share it with your coworkers, because I know this topic is a heated topic, especially in our industry. And there's a lot of misnomers out there, so which is why we wanted to share how this comparison could work. So we hope this episode was valuable for you. And as always, Mr. Collins. Cheers. This podcast is intended for general public use and for informational purposes only. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation, or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Investing in the bond market is subject to certain risks, including market, interest rate, issuer, credit, and inflation risk. Whole life insurance is intended to provide death benefit protection for an individual's entire life. With payment of the required guaranteed premiums, you will receive a guaranteed death benefit and guaranteed cash values inside the policy. Guarantees are based on the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Dividends are not guaranteed and are declared annually by the issuing insurance company's board of directors. Any loans or withdrawals reduce the policy's death benefits and cash values and affect the policy's dividend and guarantees. Whole life insurance should be considered for its long-term value. Early cash value accumulation and early payment of dividends depend upon policy type and or policy design, and cash value accumulation is offset by insurance and company expenses. Consult with your guardian representative and refer to your whole life insurance illustration for more information about your particular whole life insurance policy. 
Comdex is not a rating, but a composite of all ratings that a company has received from their major rating agencies, AM Best, Standard & Poor's, Moody's & Fitch. Comdex person percentile ranks the companies on a scale of 1 to 10, with 100 being the best. Ryan and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, OSJ 200 Market Street, Suite 1850, Portland, Oregon, 97201, phone number 503-221-1226. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Ryan Burklow, AR Insurance License number 1531912, CA Insurance License number 0K24924. Alexander Collins, AR Insurance License, number 726-4699, CA Insurance License, number 0H24806, Pinpoint, number 2023-159892, Expiration August 2025.